peace and leader of revolutionary nonviolence. Gandhi was seeking personal and spiritual wholeness. He had lived and worked for justice in South Africa, struggled nonviolently for India's independence, and spent two hours every day in meditation and prayer. He vowed to live simply, to speak the truth, and to practice nonviolence. And he refused to eat meat, declaring that the life of a lamb is no less precious than that of a human being. I was inspired by Gandhi to profess a vow of nonviolence, as he did, so that I could take this spiritual commitment seriously for the rest of my life. And in 1982, I became a vegetarian. I feel that Gandhi and his example have helped me to be a better follower of Jesus, to walk the way of nonviolence, and to move toward greater wholeness as a human being. At about the time I was studying Gandhi, I read a powerful book by Francis Moore LePay called Diet for a Small Planet. LePay argued that we could help end world hunger by redistributing our wealth and resources to the poorer people of the world, cutting back on our militarism, and becoming vegetarians. She pointed out that more and more basic grains around the world, instead of going to local communities of malnourished people, are grown and given to animals for their milk or eggs, who are later slaughtered, or who are slaughtered immediately for meat. In both instances, the animal products are consumed by the people of the developed first world and their few rich emissaries in the developing world, rather than by the starving masses. Ten years ago, China was a net grain exporter and felt certain that it would continue to export grain. But instead, as a direct result of increasing consumption of animal products, primarily pigs, China is now one of the world's top grain importers. The practical effect on people is only beginning to be felt in China. According to groups like the World Watch Institute, all developing countries that rely on animal agriculture will experience similar consequences, with a resulting increase in starvation and misery as well. It is profoundly disheartening to remember that during the famine in Ethiopia in the mid-1980s and during the famine in Somalia in the early 1990s, those countries continued to export grains to Europe to feed its cows, pigs, and chickens so that first world people could eat meat. Likewise, while people suffer and die in Central and South America, they ship their grains to the U.S. to feed our cows, pigs, and chickens so we can satisfy our desire for animal flesh, milk, and eggs. Francis Moore LePay argues rightly that we should all work to eliminate hunger and protect the environment, and that one important step we can take is to become a vegetarian. To me, working to abolish hunger, war, and violence is a basic moral and ethical duty for everyone. But not only that, for me, as a Christian, it is a basic religious and spiritual obligation, a commandment required by God. Francis Moore LePay helped me to make the connection between justice, solidarity, and the life of nonviolence, and I quickly became a vegetarian. I hope others will too, and that we can all take another step toward a more nonviolent, more just world. There are other good reasons for becoming a vegetarian, and I'd like to review a few of them, including the witness of the scriptures, a basic reverence and compassion toward God's creatures, responsible stewardship of the earth, and respect for one's own health. In God's initial and ideal world, represented in the book of Genesis by the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering, no exploitation, and no violence at all. People and animals were vegetarians, as we read in the first chapter of Genesis. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
Immediately after creating this beautiful, non-violent, non-exploitative world, God describes it as very good. This is the only time in the narrative that God calls creation very good instead of merely good, and this immediately follows God's command of vegetarianism. But after the fall, people waged war, held one another as slaves, ate meat, and committed every atrocity imaginable. After the flood, when the world's vegetation was destroyed, we are told that God allowed humans to eat meat. Scholars argue that within the context of the story, this was only a temporary permission based on human violence and sinfulness. God gives us free will and allows us the freedom to reject God and God's way of nonviolence. But God tried to help us to become less violent by commanding people to observe God's laws. In the Mosaic legal system, then, there are more than 150 laws regarding meat-eating, but the vision of Eden is still the ideal and the goal. Indeed, Leviticus strictly prohibits the eating of anything with fat or blood, and many argue that the law of Moses actually forbids the eating of flesh entirely because it's impossible to get blood totally out of meat. The best example of a vegetarian in the Bible is Daniel, the nonviolent resistor who refuses to defile himself by eating the king's meat. He and three friends actually become much healthier than everyone else through their vegetarian diet. They also become ten times smarter, and God rewards them with knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. Throughout the marvelous stories that follow, we hear of someone who remains faithful to God, refuses to worship the emperor's false gods and unjust ways, and practices steadfast nonviolence. And this marvelous story begins with divine approval of vegetarianism. The book of the prophet Isaiah proclaims the vision of the peaceable kingdom, that new realm of God where everyone will beat their swords into plowshares, refuse to study war, enjoy their own vine and fig tree, and never fear again. Several passages condemn meat-eating and foresee a day when people and animals will adopt a vegetarian diet, when, quote, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. They do no violence, no harm on all my holy mountain. Unquote. Of course, God's covenant is always with all flesh, animal and human. And in the conclusion to Isaiah, God speaks of those who kill animals in the same way as those who murder people, and heralds instead the dawn of a new day of peace. According to the prophet Hosea, God says, I will make a covenant on behalf of Israel with the wild beasts, the birds of the air, and the things that creep on the earth, and I will break every bow and sword and weapon of war and sweep them off the earth, so that all living creatures may lie down without living in fear. All these beautiful visions of the prophets reach their fulfillment, according to Christianity, in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam, who returns to us the totally nonviolent Garden of Eden. He is the Prince of Peace, who ushers in God's vision of nonviolence, mercy, and justice. Jesus spent his life healing the broken, liberating the oppressed, calling for justice, practicing nonviolence, and confronting the structures of oppression by turning over the tables of injustice. By the time he was 33, the ruling authorities had had enough and executed him. As I consider what it means to be a Christian today, reflecting on the radical, nonviolent life of Jesus, I believe that today Jesus sides with the starving, the homeless, the refugees, and the children of the world who continue to be crushed by first-world greed and war-making. 
If Jesus lived in our culture of violence, he would do everything he could to confront the structures of death and call for a new culture of peace and life. He would want us to change every aspect of our lives, to seek complete physical, spiritual, emotional, and ethical wholeness, to become people of nonviolence, children of the God of peace. Anglican priest, theologian, and Oxford professor, the Reverend Dr. Andrew Lindsay, suggests that following Christ means casting our lot with the most oppressed. In his book, Animal Theology, he says that today, no beings are more oppressed than the animals who are treated so badly by the meat industry. I conclude that as Christians, we must side with the poor and oppressed peoples of the world and with animals. In fact, the Gospels are full of favorable references to animals and reveal that Jesus had a great reverence for animals and nature. As Louis Regenstein points out in his book, Replenish the Earth, a History of Organized Religion's Treatment of Animals and Nature, Jesus calls his followers sheep. He compares his care for Jerusalem with a hen's care for her brood. He likens himself to animals, such as a lamb and a dove, because of their innocence and meekness. Behold the birds of the air, Jesus says. They do not sow, they do not reap, nor do they gather into barns, yet your heavenly God feeds them. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, Jesus later asks, and yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, in John's Gospel, Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd and notes that a good shepherd lays down his life for his flock of sheep. Dare we conclude that Jesus approves the ultimate act of compassion and love, to die nonviolently, even to protect animals? Jesus embodied nonviolence and compassion. The rest of us are called to follow in his gentle footsteps. Yet few have approached him. I think of St. Francis of Assisi.